Hello and welcome to The Almost Forgotten, the podcast that looks at the lives of great historical figures who have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. In the 11th and 12th century AD, a group of warriors spread out from northern France, a relatively new home for them, and proceeded to change the course of history, at least in a few places. The Norman conquest of England in 1066 is probably the most well-known result. But William the Conqueror wasn't the first to leave Normandy in an attempt to gain lands and wealth. In the central Mediterranean, the parts of Italy south of Rome, also known as the Mezzogiorno, as well as Sicily, were taken by a group of Norman noblemen who, unlike William the Conqueror, weren't expanding their own kingdoms, but rather trying to create new ones. Two of these men were instrumental in Sicily and southern Italy becoming Norman territory, and they were in the same family. The Hauteville family ended up ruling what became the Kingdom of Sicily, covering the island and the Mezzogiorno through the efforts of two of their members. The first, Robert Giscard, entered at the dawn of the Norman conquest of Italy, defeated his enemies, and pushed aside his competing family members to take the whole of southern Italy, much of Sicily, and parts of the Balkan Peninsula. The second, Roger II, was a military commander as well. He was a Norman knight, after all. But his lasting legacy comes from his administrative and political abilities. He united an island that had an important and modern city with a fractured region synonymous with instability, lawlessness, and constant conflict, and turned the two into a kingdom that lasted for centuries. The next two episodes will be about these two men. As always, maps and images for this episode can be found on the website almostforgotten.squarespace.com. You can email me at almostforgottenpodcast at gmail.com or find me on Twitter at the Almost Forgot. And if you leave a comment on iTunes or donate on the website and send me a screenshot of it, you'll be entered into the drawing for those House of Savoy items. Now, let's talk about some French Vikings. This is Season 3, Episode 4, The Story of the Norman Conquest of Italy and Sicily, Part 1, Robert Giscard, and this is The Almost Forgotten. Robert Giscard was born around 1015 AD, give or take, somewhere in the Normandy region of northern France. There were a few major powers that dominated Europe in the Middle East and North Africa. The original Muslim caliphate no longer existed, but the Umayyads controlled Spain and Morocco, the Fatimids claimed lands from Algeria through to Egypt and the Levant, and the Abbasids still held southern Mesopotamia. Going back northwest along the Mediterranean, the Eastern-slash-Byzantine Empire held Anatolia, Greece, and parts of southern Italy. Hungary had just become a kingdom, and Poland was on the verge of the same thing. To their east lay the vast Kievan Rus, a Slavic confederacy led by the Varangians, or Vikings. To their north was Sweden, a relatively new kingdom, and Norway, which was fighting against unity, as well as Christianity and were known mostly as the source of the many Viking raiders of the era. The Holy Roman Empire ruled most of Central Europe, from today's Germany, Belgium, and uh, let's not talk about the Netherlands just yet, 
down through Switzerland and Austria, into Slovenia, and into the Piedmont, Lombardy, and Tuscany in northern Italy, stopping at Rome. In France, the Capetian dynasty had taken over from the last Carolingians there, less than 50 years prior, and it was still a disunited and fractured kingdom. England was still Anglo-Saxon, unified in the early 900s under Wessex, or the Kingdom of the West Saxons. Canute the Great, King of Denmark, conquered England in 1016 and joined those kingdoms briefly, although in 1066 they had an Anglo-Saxon king once again, at least to start the year. Further east, the Ghaznavid Empire, a Turkic Mamluk group, ruled much of today's eastern Iran, Afghanistan, and Pakistan. Smaller middle kingdoms ruled a disunited India, with the western Chalukya Empire in the central Deccan Plateau, and the Chola in the south, being two of the more powerful. The Song Dynasty was the most powerful empire in the east, controlling most of China, while the kingdom of Goryeo ruled over a united Korea, having ousted unified Shilla in the 900s. In Southeast Asia, Suryavarman I was the Khmer Emperor in Angkor for most of the first half of the 11th century, and the Srivijayans ruled the southern Malay Peninsula and western Indonesia. The Ghana Empire ruled over parts of western Africa, the Kanem Empire further east. The Kingdom of Aksum had collapsed in Ethiopia, and a strong successor state hadn't yet formed. In the Americas, the weaker post-classical Maya period was beginning. Although they had formed a confederation of states known today as the League of Mayapan, which retook the Yucatan from the invading Toltec Empire, who controlled much of central Mexico. The pre-Incan Tiwanaku Empire was strong west of the Andes. So, back in our setting, back in Europe, let's get some context for the Mediterranean specifically, starting with that sea's largest island. Sicily had not really been a central part of the great empires in antiquity. Sure, there were exceptions, like a famous and disastrous excursion there by the Athenians during the Peloponnesian War. But its location in the middle of the Mediterranean, as well as its ability to provide grain to the more important parts of the empires, did make it a desirable place to own. It was settled and fought over by Phoenicians, Greeks, Carthaginians, and for a time was dominated by the kingdom of Syracuse, before fully being absorbed by Rome in 212 BC as a province. Six centuries later, give or take, the Vandals and Goths grabbed it, until Belisarius, general for the Byzantine Emperor Justinian, took it en route to taking back the rest of Italy. This lasted until 826, when a Byzantine commander was driven from the island by the forces of the emperor after being charged with abduction and murder. He allied with the Arabs to the south and returned with Muslim forces, who in turn created the Emirate of Sicily, fully expelling the Byzantines by the mid-900s. Over a century of Muslim rule at that time helped bring Sicily to the forefront of science and culture, especially its capital of Palermo. In 1038, though, the Byzantines were resurgent and tried to retake the island, and they brought Norman mercenaries with them. We're getting to Robert's time, though, so we'll leave Sicily there for a moment and turn to the southern Italian mainland. By the mid-500s, the Lombards, a Germanic people, took over much of Italy by pushing out the Byzantines, who themselves kicked out the Ostrogoths, who had established a kingdom after helping precipitate the fall of the Western Roman Empire. 
In the late 700s, Charlemagne and his father before him had pushed the Lombards south of Rome, where they retained a smaller kingdom. The southern Italian Lombard kingdom declined and split apart into duchies swearing fealty to the power in central Italy, the Pope. And the Byzantines also held some territory still. Calabria, the toe of Italy, where many Greeks from the empire lived, and Apulia, the boot heel and Achilles tendon, I guess, of Italy. Apulia was more Italian in ethnicity, but was more cosmopolitan and, facing the Adriatic, was plugged in directly to the profitable Byzantine trade routes. Both had direct Byzantine administration. There were also city-states, such as Naples and Amalfi, which were semi-independent and much more Italian, but swore loyalty to Constantinople. The Normans were not native to this environment. They were Vikings, by way of France. Without getting too deep into it, the Vikings really began raiding outside of Scandinavia in the late 700s. Eventually, one of the places they raided was France, the Carolingian-led kingdom of West Francia. They made their way up the rivers and besieged Paris a couple times, but they ended up wintering in the northwest area of Francia, until in 911, their leader Rollo negotiated a treaty with King Charles III of West Francia. He was granted a fiefdom, a duchy nominally within West Francia. Over the next century, thanks in part to their Frankish wives, these Vikings adopted Catholicism, the local feudal customs, and a version of the local Languedoc, or French language. They settled down and became the Normans, a local way of saying Norsemen, and the region they populated became known as Normandy. Because they were technically Frankish subjects, these men were sometimes referred to, especially in the Muslim sources, as Franks. They had a distinctive look in battle, and if you've seen the Bayou Tapestry, depicting the 1066 Battle of Hastings, another Norman conquest, it should be familiar. They had those distinctive kite shields, large, almond-shaped, almost teardrop-shaped shields that covered much of the wearer's left flank. They wore helmets that were somewhat conical at the top, with a single nasal guard coming down in the middle, and they wore chainmail that covered most of their body. None of this gets them to the Mediterranean, though. The Normans showed up there in southern Italy, first at the behest of local Lombard rulers. The way they got there was actually on a religious pilgrimage. In 1015, the year Giscard may have been born, some warrior pilgrims were in a church in Italy, when a Lombard nobleman named Melis, from the important Apulian port of Bari, was impressed with the look of these tough Frenchmen and asked them to come back with more to help him win the duchy over which he was fighting. So they began fighting for the Lombards as mercenaries. They, under Melis, were able to deliver some pretty surprising blows to his adversaries. But after defeating the Byzantines in several battles, the 250 or so Normans were wiped out at the Second Battle of Cannae, this one in 1018 AD, with only about 10 Normans surviving. Malus was defeated, but the Normans didn't go home. Word had gotten out, and more kept crossing the Alps to find service in the disunited and chaotic southern Italy, including under the employment of the Byzantines. A nobleman named Reynolf Drengot, who had been exiled by the Duke of Normandy, possibly for murder, was among these adventurers, and his actions in the service of a Lombard prince eventually earned him a small fiefdom, the Castle of Aversa, in 1030 AD. 
This was the first Norman-held territory in Italy, and Reynolf sent letters back to Normandy looking for more of his countrymen to enter his service. It reached the home of Tancred, a relatively poor minor nobleman who lived in the castle in Otavilla, or Hauteville in English pronunciation, a small town on the Cotentin Peninsula. Also called the Cherbourg Peninsula, it's the small strip of land that juts north into the English Channel, sorry, La Manche, on the western edge of Normandy, east of Brittany. So the thing about Tancred is he was fertile. And maybe having over a dozen kids wasn't so rare at the time. But besides his daughters, of which he had a few, he had 12 sons who survived into adulthood. And these men didn't have many prospects. They didn't have much money, and only one could inherit the castle. Thanks to Rollo, they couldn't just go raiding their neighbor France, since that was their overlord, unless they wanted to start an actual rebellion. They had to go out into the world and make their names. But how? Reynolf's letter was the answer to that question. Eight of Tancred's boys made their way down south, and most of them ended up with some territory or another. At some point, a couple of them went and fought as mercenaries in Sicily. By the late 1030s, the oldest of the brothers to make the journey, William and Drogo, yes, Drogo, had arrived in Italy. They used their noble births and their skills as warriors to gain a place of prominence among the Lombards. They were able to get established as counts with their own territories, under a Lombard duke. William died in 1045, and Drogo became the Count of Apulia, at least according to the Normans who conquered it. When, in 1047, the Holy Roman Emperor Henry III made his way down to what was nominally imperial southern Italy, he recognized Drogo in Apulia, as well as Reynolf in Aversa, as vassals. They were given legitimacy. According to Edmund Curtis in his book Roger of Sicily and the Normans in Lower Italy, Henry III drastically changed the state of the region. Quote, Before this, his brothers and he were mere elected commanders of the Norman war bands. By imperial investiture, the Count of Apulia acquired an actual sovereignty. By it, he broke the last Lombard power which was capable of checking the Normans, and in legalizing their position, he practically surrendered the south to them. But the policy of the western emperors in Lower Italy was not wont to be far-sighted or consistent. The immediate advantage that the Greeks should be driven from Apulia seemed sufficient." Unquote. Around this time, another Hauteville brother, Robert, entered the region. He's described as tall, handsome, loud, and fearsome. He also gained a reputation for outmaneuvering his enemies, earning the nickname Robert Giscard, Viscardus in Latin, which translates to something like Robert the Brave and Cunning, or Wily. Robert the Fox if you respect him, Robert the Weasel if you don't. Giscard visited his brother Drogo, but he wasn't given any land of his own just yet. Drogo controlled some coastal towns, but the mountains inland were still unconquered. Wanting to get in on some of that sweet, sweet appropriation of someone else's land, he started out as basically a marauding bandit. There were still towns to attack that were loyal to Byzantium or the Lombard princes, and there was still infighting among the different regions. The Normans were gaining a reputation for being not all that nice, 
as they laid siege to town after town in southern Italy. The region, already a lawless land that princes and dukes and warlords were constantly fighting over, somehow seemed even less safe to the contemporary chroniclers. This is probably because most of these chroniclers were churchmen, and the Normans seemed to give them no more respect than any other victims. This was during the era in medieval history when the Pope and his office were really beginning to rise in importance. They received correspondence from the South begging for aid against these invaders. Leaders of ancient, independent cities of the region seemed to be more willing and able to fight than the Lombard princes, and may have been more instrumental in getting Rome to help. The Pope appealed to Drogo, as well as the Lombard prince of Salerno, to clean it up a bit down there, that the church wasn't happy with all the chaos. Soon after, though, Drogo was murdered, and another brother, Humphrey, was given his title. In 1052, Salerno's prince was also assassinated. Humphrey took advantage of his death by taking a few cities he had dominion over, although not the capital city of Salerno itself, which remained in Lombard hands. That year, the Pope was fed up enough to go to Germany and convince the Holy Roman Emperor, Henry III, to help him forcefully restore order in southern Italy. He wasn't able to get much, though, as the empire was dealing with issues in the east but 700 Swabian infantrymen marched down to help out. The Pope was able to gather troops elsewhere, though, including from the Lombards and from loyal Italian city-states. His forces totaled around 6,000 soldiers, and the Byzantines, too, marched out an army to help the Pope, after they failed to buy off the Normans to do their bidding. These Byzantine troops were commanded by a local Lombard who had sworn allegiance to Constantinople, and may have been mostly locals themselves. As the local Italians prevented the Normans from gathering food and supplies, their smaller army of around 3,000 mounted knights and 500 infantry began to feel the depredations of being in an inhospitable country. The two armies met near the northern Apulian town of Civitate, and the Pope waited there for that Byzantine help, still marching to the location. Starvation and desperation caused the Normans to ask for a truce. But when this was refused, they decided they might as well fight, despite being outnumbered. And so, in June of 1053, they did. The Battle of Civitate started with the Norman knights divided into three groups of about a thousand each. Reynolf Dregnot's son, Richard, commanded the left, Humphrey had the center, and Robert Giscard had the right, showing how much he had gained in status in his five years of raiding towns. I mean, I'm sure it also helped that two of his brothers had already died, and another, Humphrey, was probably the most important of the Norman commanders, at the very least tied in importance with Richard Dregnot. Either way, Giscard was already seen as a capable commander. There were other Norman noblemen at Civitate, but he was given command of a third of the army. The frontal assault by the Normans may have surprised the enemy, the Lombard infantry soon turned heel and fled as Richard Dregnot and his horsemen attacked. In the middle, the Swabian infantry was holding their own against Humphrey when Giscard brought his knights in on their flank. This caused the rest of the army to flee, allowing Dregnot to wheel back and attack the Swabians from behind. The Swabians were slaughtered, possibly to a man, as they never fled or surrendered. Pope Leo IX, who ran to the town of Civitate, was turned over to the victorious Normans, who told him he was very much going to be treated well in their protection 
and that he was very much not going to be leaving their protection at that time. They escorted him to Benevento, and at some point before April of the following year, he officially recognized them as counts and dukes and princes. Whatever you want, really, can I just go back to Rome? In April of 1054, we know he was back in Rome, though, because that's when he died there. Giscard turned his attention to Calabria, the toe of Italy, and began taking towns there. He was doing this all rather well when Humphrey died in 1057. Humphrey asked him to please take care of his young sons as they would inherit his lands. Giscard said, of course, of course, but, you know, the other Norman nobleman elected him as the new count, and he sort of ignored those promises. Giscard returned to his conquest of Calabria, and this time he had another brother, Roger, with him. Roger had just arrived in Italy, and he joined his older brothers, because there was also a Geoffrey of Hauteville, a Maugher of Hauteville, and another William of Hauteville, who probably all fought at Civitate. The Normans took most of the towns in Calabria, which had remained loyal to Constantinople and had a significant Greek-speaking population. Around that time, the Lombard Duke of Capua died, and Richard Dregnot took the city. Richard essentially became the Duke of Capua in 1058, which had been in Lombard hands for some 200 years. The following year, Giscard, along with the other Norman lords, paid homage to the new pope when he visited southern Italy. By then, the brief alliance between Constantinople and Rome had melted away. Some in Rome saw the lack of action from Byzantine forces at Civitate as particularly indicting. On top of this, there were also quarrels between the papacy and the Holy Roman Empire. So the Normans were happy to play nice with the Pope and promised to pay him tribute. In return, the Papa officially gave the Duchy of Capua to Richard Dregnot. Giscard was invested as Duke of Apulia and Calabria and future Lord of Sicily. For the Pope, keeping the Muslims and Orthodox Christians out was the most important thing, and these quarreling Norman lords would do just fine. After this ceremony, Giscard went back to his day job, the conquest of his non-Norman neighbor's territory. In 1060, he took Reggio in Calabria, finishing up the conquest of the Toe of Italy. A few cities in Apulia, Bari the most prominent, remained in Byzantine hands, but it was only a matter of time before they came over. For the most part, his duchy seemed secure, so he set his eyes on his next target, Sicily. Giscard and his brother Roger set out to take the island from the various Muslim rulers there. For Roger... It was a chance to finally get some land for himself. He, like his brothers, was very good at the business of fighting. But while piling up gold is nice, what a man wants is land. And Giscard wasn't giving him any. But Giscard would be able to get Roger some territory in Sicily, as wide open as it was, no problem. It was still under Arab rule, but it was split among rival emirs, and besides being disunited, was rich in arable land and money. Palermo, on the northwest corner of the triangular island, was one of the great cities of the world being located at a maritime crossroads between the great Muslim cities of Cordoba in the west and Cairo and Baghdad in the east. Roger started by attacking Messina, just across its eponymous strait from Calabria, but was rebuffed in 1060. Giscard joined him in 1061, along with about 2,000 men, and they were able to take it. They were welcomed by one of the emirs, 
who saw in the Normans the mercenaries who would help him defeat his rivals. Must not have heard about the whole Lombards in southern Italy business. Though outnumbered, Giscard and Roger began taking town after town. As most Englanders can attest, the Normans were prolific castle builders. They were also masters of siegecraft, so he was able to gain a small foothold on the island, despite his few men. But every time they seemed to gain momentum, something would call them back to Italy. Giscard and Roger got in some arguing. They may have even drawn up forces against one another, but they settled it peacefully. Giscard gave Roger some control over Calabria. Not as a standard vassal, but rather they owned it together. Giscard was still the senior partner, but it gave Roger more clout. Giscard wanted to focus on shoring up his mainland holdings, so he also gave Roger the task of expanding their foothold in Sicily. In response to these Norman incursions, the Zirid dynasty in Tunis sent an army to Palermo to try and help out the emirates on the island. In 1063, outside of the westernmost Norman fortress on the island, Troina, they met the Normans at the town of Chirami. Roger had not quite 150 knights, and probably some infantry, maybe 500, while the Muslim forces numbered in the thousands. Some sources put it at tens of thousands, mostly infantry and light cavalry. The Zirids tried to take the town, but were pushed back by a small contingent of knights. The Norman forces formed up together, and Roger charged. He was pushed back, but a charge from a group of his knights on the enemy flank helped him out. Without room to maneuver, a melee ensued. But Roger's heavy cavalry was eventually able to break the Zirid line and send the enemy Sicilian forces fleeing. There weren't many more head-to-head battles between the Muslim forces and the Norman ones after that. By 1068, Roger had ousted the Zirid forces from the island thanks to a series of sieges rather than more open battles. Giscard had wanted to help out, but he was busy in Italy. He besieged Bari, that major town on the Apulian coast still loyal to the Byzantines, and after several years he was finally able to get it to surrender in April of 1071. He now held all the cities in his territory of Apulia, and was then able to finally help out his little brother in Sicily. Palermo was the prime target, and Roger couldn't take it with just a few hundred men. Late in 1071, Giscard bought 50 ships from Apulia to blockade the city, and Roger brought a large army, more than 15,000 men, the only time he had anywhere near that number for probably the entire campaign. After besieging the city for a few months, something they were very good at, they stormed it. Giscard threw up ladders and made it into part of the city. There was some initial resistance, but the city leaders surrendered with terms before they could make their way in any further. Giscard was named Emir. The Muslims in the city were allowed to remain and practice their religion. And Roger was named Count of Sicily as a vassal to Giscard. Roger then set about taking the rest of the island. Soon, the only real threat was in the ancient town of Syracuse, but eventually, in 1086, they besieged it and were able to capture it. By 1091, he took the two islands to the south, Gozo and its sister Malta, without a fight, and all of Sicily was in his possession. Back on the mainland, Giscard consolidated his possessions, but now he had to deal with internal uprisings. The sons of Humphrey, that he totally promised to protect, wanted to get their duchy back. The Byzantines were happy to bankroll this uprising. 
Richard Dregnot over in Capua wasn't above encouraging this to keep his rival in check either. Despite the flare-ups, after returning from Sicily, Giscard was able to take Salerno in 1076, and he basically held all of the most southern portions of Italy. There were still other territories to his immediate north, like Capua and Benevento, that weren't his. There had been an attempt at some sort of entente with the Byzantines in 1074, when Giscard sent his daughter to Constantinople to marry the son of Emperor Michael VII, co-emperor, heir, and newborn son, Constantine Ducas. But by 1078, Michael VII had been ousted, Constantine was no longer the heir, and he broke off his engagement with Giscard's daughter. That same year, a major revolt in Apulia, supported by the Byzantines, lost him most of the duchy for a time. It took two years, but he fought and took it back in a bloody reconquest. Perhaps it was at this point he decided he needed to take the fight to the Greeks. In the spring of 1081, Giscard invaded Illyria on the other side of the Adriatic Sea from Italy, which was Byzantine territory. He landed near the heavily fortified town of Dyrrhachium in today's Albania and proceeded to try and take the city. His first few attacks were repulsed. Then the new Byzantine emperor, an accomplished general named Alexios Komnenos, arrived to lift the siege. The two armies formed up against each other, Giscard with about 1,300 knights and 13,000 infantry, and Alexios with about 20,000 soldiers in total. In the center, Giscard, now the undisputed big dog among the Normans, led his infantry up front with his knights behind them. Facing them was the center of the Byzantine line, made up of the Varangian Guard, an elite Byzantine unit of soldiers, and originally they were Kievan Rus mercenaries. The Kievan Rus originated as Viking raiders who took over Kiev, and it is somewhat interesting that their descendants were fighting against descendants of Viking raiders who had taken over Normandy. Well, they were spiritual descendants, not necessarily genetic ones, because by the late 11th century, most, maybe all, of the Varangian Guard was no longer Kievan Rus. They were actually Anglo-Saxons, displaced warriors from England, who had fled after Normans came and took over that island. And you wonder why this period is sometimes called the Viking Age. As the battle started, the Norman right side charged in, but was pushed back, and they turned and ran. The Varangian Guard began to pursue this group, exposing their own flank. This was set upon by Giscard in the center and was destroyed. The Norman left charged in and won there, while the fleeing Norman right was rallied by Giscard's wife, Sigilgeta. According to Emperor Alexios Komnenos' daughter, who wrote a history that is one of the only primary sources we have for this era, Sigilgeta saw the men fleeing in her direction, picked up a spear, and got them to turn around and rejoin the battle. Giscard then sent his knights in, and the Byzantines were beaten. It was a decisive victory for the Normans, although they still couldn't enter the walled city of Dyrrhachium. That came the next year, in 1082, and after taking some of Illyria, Robert began to eye Constantinople itself. What made Giscard think he could take on the Byzantines? His victory at Dyrrhachium was hard fought, not easy, and this was still the Eastern Roman Empire we're talking about a relatively resurgent one at that. But his victory was also decisive, and he had evidence that his Norman forces could beat most any enemy they faced. Why were they so good? 
Well, first of all, they were really effective at sea. Their naval capabilities rivaled any of the other European powers in the Mediterranean. The Venetians may be able to bring more boats to bear, but weren't always interested in defending the Byzantines, who were more like their allies than their overlords, at least in the 11th century. The Byzantine navy, meanwhile, had diminished to the point of basically relying on Venice to police the northeast Mediterranean. And that's not to say the Normans themselves were incredible seafarers. They often used Muslim, Sicilian, Italian, or other people to build their naval force. But as it stood, while you couldn't say they ruled the sea, they had enough naval power to go where they pleased. Really, though, these big battles that Giscard led victoriously, they took place on land. And that is where the Normans really dominated their enemies. The Norman knights were essentially so good because they were knights. Okay, what do I mean by that? It has nothing to do with their status, although that allowed them to be knights, but it was more about their arms, armor, and tactics. Before knights, which are heavily armored cavalry, most of the armies in Europe fought with infantry. Cavalry was not unheard of, nor was it new. Cavalry had been used in combined arms very effectively by Alexander the Great's army. But at the time, cavalry was mostly used as an auxiliary force to the infantry. They weren't heavily armored knights, and they worked to attack enemy flanks with javelins. Infantry would crash head-on. Cavalry would soften them up from the side or the back until the enemy fled, and then they'd chase them down and kill them. The Normans, though, used their cavalry differently. Their heavily armored knights used lances, spears that were big, heavy, and most certainly not for throwing. They also had their sword or axe or whatever, but their lance was their main weapon. They sat astride war horses, bred to carry the weight of a fully armored knight, with high back saddles and stirrups to help them remain in place and absorb the shock of going in head on at an enemy. And that's just what these chainmail wearing, kite shield holding, lance wielding Norman knights did, and in some ways completely changed the way cavalry could be used. According to Robert C. L. Holmes in his article in the American International Journal of Social Science with the George R. R. Martin-esque title of Men of the North Wind, the Norman Knight in the 11th Century Mediterranean, quote, In battle, knights usually deployed in either a line or wedge formation. The line formation was often several ranks deep and so tight that each knight's knees touched those of his neighbor. Advancing slowly, Gradually building up speed until they crashed straight into their enemies, the knights would then launch a series of frontal assaults. Although this formation meant that the knights struck their enemy on a narrower front, they also struck with more violence and penetrated deeper into the enemy formation. Unquote. This attack, head on into the enemy infantry, not always at the beginning of the battle, was often devastating. Think about it men on horseback heavy with their armor on, with a large shield covering one side and a long lance coming out from the other side, often charging into lightly armored infantry. Add in the fact that the infantry for people like the Lombards were often just farmers levied to defend their region by their feudal lord, or were Muslim peasants pressed into duty, and these Norman charges were usually devastating. That's why, when they talk about the conquest of Sicily, where a few hundred knights defeated a few thousand, even 10,000 infantry, it's not often followed by, but these numbers are now disputed. Nobody else, not the Byzantine armies, not the Muslim forces, 
really did these heavy cavalry charges. It would take a while for everyone else to catch up. Part of the reason that the Normans could do this is that the feudal system allowed for lords to afford heavy armor and equipment. Chainmail wasn't cheap, neither were specially bred war horses. The Byzantine and Muslim armies, although often professional and effective, were limited in their ability to incorporate what were essentially advances in technology and tactics because they couldn't field a group of a thousand mounted heavy cavalry, at least not right away. With enough numbers, they could be a real threat to the Normans, but they never really brought enough numbers to do it. The Holy Roman Empire was the only place that seemed to be able to bring enough troops to bear to counter the Norman aggression. When they visited southern Italy in full force, they often, although not always, won. A combination of effective troops and probably the use of some knights themselves helped make them a possible match against the Normans. But in general, as Holmes writes, quote, the Normans' knightly system was able to completely dominate the military systems encountered during the conquest of their Mediterranean kingdom, unquote. The knight was the key to Norman conquest and their battlefield supremacy, and they were able to use this advantage to take southern Italy and Sicily. Back to Giscard, as badly as he wanted to then move on and take Constantinople, he once again had to turn around and return to Italy. Soon after the Battle of Dyrrhachium, revolts again flared up there, and the Holy Roman Emperor was threatening the Pope. He had an anti-Pope in tow and besieged Rome. The Pope only held Hadrian's mausoleum, also known as the Castel Sant'Angelo, and Giscard showed up with a massive army. He sent a message to the Germans that they should quit Rome or prepare for battle against the man who had beat them at Civitate, but there was no battle to be had. The emperor left the city, leaving some of his army behind. They allowed Giscard in, and when a few scuffles ensued, it turned into a complete pillage of parts of the city by the Normans. Giscard took the pope with him south out of his castle prison to Benevento, the anti-pope Clement III supported by the Holy Roman Empire and some Romans, remained in whatever was left of Rome. Back in Greece, the Norman forces that Giscard left behind to continue the fight had pressed east into Macedonia and Thessaly, before counterattacks pushed them back. Giscard returned and retook the island of Corfu. He set off to take more of the Byzantine theme of Cephalonia, where Corfu was located, before a fever took hold of him. He returned to Corfu, and in July of 1085, Robert de Otavia, Robert Giscard, conqueror of southern Italy, died. His wife Sigilgeta and his brother Roger were there when he died. They took his body back to the Hauteville tomb in Venosa in southern Italy, where Drogo and a few other of Tancred's sons had been buried. On his tomb was the inscription, Here lies the terror of the world, the Giscard. From the city he expelled that king of the Ligurians, Romans, and Germans. The Parthian, Arabian, and the Macedonian phalanx could not save Alexius, only flight, but the Venetians, neither flight nor the sea, could spare. Thanks in part to Sigilgeta, her son with Robert Giscard, Roger Borsa, became the new duke. Giscard's eldest son, Bohemond, A formidable warrior who led the forces in Greece while Giscard returned to Italy to help the Pope was edged out. The Norman lords gave their blessing, and Bohemond was given cities as a vassal under Roger Borsa. 
Borsa wasn't the force that his father was, and the area once again erupted in rebellion. Some baronies stayed loyal, but cities in places like Apulia thought maybe Byzantine protection would be better, as they would have more independence. Borsa was able to hold on to the title, but his dukedom became a state of feudal anarchy. Vassals fighting vassals, some aligned to Borsa, some only paying him lip service, some in open rebellion. The various Norman magnates saw an opportunity and took advantage. Soon, the whole of southern Italy, although under Norman control, was plunged into conflict. It was mostly Norman against Norman, and often it was nominally under the dukedom that Giscard had created, but it wasn't united and it wasn't a kingdom. Roger of Sicily, though, was in charge of his own territory, with no rivals to speak of, at least on his island. And next time, we'll take a look at what came from there, and how his son, Roger II, turned this fractious set of Norman dukedoms into a fully integrated kingdom. Thanks for listening. And originally they were Kievan Rus Musen. And originally they were Kievan Rus Musener. And originally they were Kievan Rus Musen.